if you leave a bad legacy, you live for godlessness, you're selfish, you abuse other people, you take advantage of other people. In the human world, people are really not going to want to remember you. But if you leave behind a legacy of godliness, there may even be people generations from now that are like, hey, you know what? I'd, I'd like to name my child, my son or my daughter after that person because the name is associated with something positive. Now, how much more is this true of God's view of us? Uh, God has created us. And if we live our lives in rebellion against God and disobedience against God, if we abuse others and take advantage of others and worship idols and disobey God and disdain God, God's going to wipe us out. So today I want to talk to you about legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want to be like on the list of people that no one really wants to remember? Or do you want to be on the list of people that people do want to remember? Do you want to be on the list of people that God's going to destroy? Or do you want to be on the list of people that God wants to bless? We have been studying the book of Habakkuk of all things for the past few weeks. We have four sermons scheduled out. This is the third one. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets kind of tail end of the old Testament. And in the first couple chapters, for those of you just joining us and by way of review, Habakkuk goes to God and he makes two complaints of God. The first complaint and he's kind of speaking on behalf of all of us, because we all think about this stuff, is God, why do you allow suffering? You seem idle, you seem distant, you seem disengaged. I mean, you don't seem to be doing much. Why do you allow your people to suffer? God's like, oh, I'm very much at work in the world. I'm actually raising up a nation to discipline you. And so we discover early in Habakkuk that one of the one of the things God uses suffering for is to discipline and correct his people when they wander. Then there's a second complaint that Habakkuk gives to God. And that complaint is, well, God, you're so holy and you're so wonderful. Why would you allow yourself to be exposed to ridicule, to abuse, to idolatry? And God's like, Hey, just wait and see what I have in store. I'm in control. It may seem like I'm delaying, but I'm actually still very much sitting on my throne and I'm in control. And of course that message then brings peace because we know that while our timing isn't God's timing, God's still in control. God's working out all things for our good and for his ultimate glory. And now we're into the rest of chapter two. And we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter two, verses six to 20 today. And in this part of the Bible, God is now revealing to us what he is going to do to evildoers. So he's speaking to the Babylonians who were abusive, who were tyrannical, who were idolatrous, who were terrible people. They'd been used by God to discipline his people. They actually captured Israel and took them into captivity from 586 to 516. They were terrible people. God's like, hey, When you are struggling with questions of human suffering, when you're wondering, why am I not avenging the just? Why am I not defending myself? Let me tell you what I'm going to do to evildoers. And so as we enter into this passage, we receive five don'ts, do nots. 
they're, they come to us in the form of what are called woes. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're taunts. They're riddles that God delivers to the Babylonians as he assesses their sin and pronounces judgment upon them. And then there's one do at the end of the passage. Five do nots, one do. God is speaking to the Babylonians, but it's still in our Bible two and a half millennia later. Why? Why? Babylonians are long gone. Well, because maybe we need to assess our own lives a little bit and ask ourselves, are any of these things in my life? And if they are, I don't want them to be there because I want to honor God and I want to bless others. I want to live my life properly. I want to leave behind a great legacy. I don't want to destroy this one opportunity I have to live my life well. So we're going to look at the passage now. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. Five don'ts and one do for us to consider. Here's how it starts. God says, shall not all these, that is the victims of the Babylonians, take up their taunt against him with scoffing and ridicules for him and say, so at the beginning of this passage, we know this is a taunt. God is taunting. He's mocking the godless. He's laughing at them. And he says, Hey, as a result of the way you've lived, thrown away your lives, you've destroyed other people. You've been godless. You've lived for yourself. You know, nothing. Other people are going to scoff at you too. So now we have the five woes for us to look at. So here's the first woe. Don't acquire possessions dishonestly. Do not acquire possessions dishonestly. The Bible says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? This is what the Babylonians had done. They'd sacked different cities. They'd ransacked people's lives. They had stolen. They had pillaged. They had looted. They had raped. They had taken people's lives. God says, woe. Woe to him who heaps up that which is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? In other words, you reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. You abuse other people in time. They're going to rise up and knock you out. Then you will be spoiled for them. Verse eight. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. You will reap what you sow. If you're dishonest, if you're a thief, if you're a plunderer, God will catch up to you. And he will often use the very people that you've abused or taken advantage of to take you down. The Babylonians, of course, were guilty of this on a national level. We could even say international level because they had kind of taken over the known world at the time. Very few of you are probably going to go to war and steal other people's things, but the principle still applies. Is it possible that you have taken that which is not yours? Is it possible that you are guilty of thievery? Is it possible that you're guilty of acquiring possessions dishonestly. What shape could that take? Well, how about cheating in business? How about flat old theft? How about shoplifting in the store? See it. Don't want to spend money on it into the pocket. It goes. How about 
Software theft. I've heard Christians say, oh, they're big corporations. I don't want to get a license. I don't want to pay for the software. It's like, oh, did, did you design it? Did you market it? Did you build the office building and put the systems together to design that software? It's not yours. You don't own it. It may be owned by a very rich conglomerate, but it's not yours. You pay for other people's intellectual property. Maybe you've been guilty of stealing time from your employer. The employer trusts you. You're not always in their view. You get paid for 40 hours, but you know you have only worked 30 or 25, or you get paid for 25 hours and you only work for 15. You go to work, you get paid for all of that, but you're on Facebook or you're out for extra long lunches or you're lollygagging in some park someplace or you're hiding out in the lunchroom. That's called theft church. And it's out of bounds for followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're guilty of stealing materials from your workplace. Well, I'm just borrowing them, but I'm never planning on returning them. The people of God are called to a high standard. God taunts, mocks, and ridicules the Babylonian unbelievers for stealing. The people of God are called to work hard for our own funds, for our own possessions. Here's what it says in Proverbs 13, 11. Dishonest wealth will dwindle. Eventually it'll catch up to you. But he who gathers little by little sees it grow. You see, if you're an honest person, you win in the long term. He who gathers money little by little sees it grow. But dishonest wealth will dwindle. So don't do that. Don't be a person marked by thievery of time, other people's time, other people's possessions. Don't do that. Secondly, don't be the kind of person that seeks status for yourself. Here's the second woe. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. God uses the imagery of a nest. I know there's some birds that build nests on the ground, but most of the time we think of a nest as being up in a tree or up in a hydro pole or somewhere in a lofty position away from a cat, away from a predator. They're up, they're elevated. God's like, what are the person that lives their life pursuing an elevated status in life? You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The very thing that you have spent your time and energy building your castle, it will testify against you. It will crumble. It will not last. I will take it back from you is what God is communicating to Babylon. He's speaking out against the Babylonian desire for global supremacy. The arrogance of it. Wanting to put themselves in a lofty position. Now there's nothing wrong with status. If it's stewarded to you. And you are using that to bless other people. And honor and glorify God. But there's something deeply wrong with status that you have acquired by abusing other people and that you are using 
for self-promotion, for selfishness, for greed. There's nothing wrong with hearing another person praise you or give you status. In the book of Proverbs chapter 27, verse two, it says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. There's nothing wrong with praising each other, honoring each other. We're called to give honor to whom honor is due. There's nothing wrong with speaking well of other people, but it's a very different thing when we seek it out for ourselves, for our own benefits, for our own blessings. So just ask yourself this question. When you have opportunities to advance yourself at work, in the church, in society, in government, in your school, ask this very basic question. Do I seek these things for my own benefit? Or do I seek these things so that I might be a benefit to others and glorify God with my time, my talents, my treasures? We see the motivation here is for evil because at the beginning of verse nine, it says, woe to him who gets evil gain. You're like, well, how do I know if it's evil or good? Well, the next few words answers that question for his house. You know, gain is evil when it's just for you, when it's for your own benefit. But when we have gain given to us or we seek gain so that we might be a blessing to others, that's great. That's fair game. The consequences of evil gain are as follows. Look at the text. Shame. The forfeiture of your life. Again, it's about the difference between ownership and stewardship. The owner says it's mine. I own it. It's for me. I will use it for my honor. I will use it for my power. I will use it to feel better about myself. The steward says, I'm holding on to it. I want to be responsible for what God has given me. And I want to bless other people through it. Don't seek status. Dishonest gain, don't seek after it. Status for your own benefit, for your own house, don't seek after it. Here's the third one. Don't stand for violence. Another woe, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is from, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing for the Lord shall be filled with the not for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is mocking Babylon here for their bloody tyrannical, tyrannical iniquitous actions. They were a people committed to violence and God speaks out against here. The sin of violence, the sin of using your power, your muscle, your military machinery, your military ingenuity to bring destruction upon other people. The Bible does on occasion advocate violence for redemptive purposes. Did you hear that? The Bible does at times advocate 
violence for redemptive purposes, to stand up for the abused, to push aside the oppressor, to discipline the murderer, for example, both under the old covenant and the new. There is a theology of redemptive violence woven into the pages of scripture. But most of the time, violence is just plain old evil. And when people do violence against others for their own benefit and for the purpose of destroying the person, God has something to say about that. God's interested in his people living at peace, not glorifying violence, not advocating for violence, not being quick to getting physical with someone. God is a God that is calling us as people who follow the man of peace to live at peace. And yet we live in a culture that in fact is very, very, very violent. And we live in a culture that sadly glorifies violence, even making violence into kind of an entertainment sort of thing. You know, we look back at Rome, we're like, how could you throw a couple people in the ring and you know, the whole gladiator sports, that's disgusting, that's wrong. How could you do that? 2,000 years later, we're still glorifying violence. We're glorifying violence when we watch gratuitous horror films. Oh, this is going to be fun. Let's go to the movies and see some sicko dismember other people. Oh, that was so entertaining, eating popcorn and drinking our pop as we're doing it. We glorify violence when, you know, we dress up as ghouls or corpses for Halloween. Oh, but it's all in good fun. We're glorifying violence. We're glorifying violence when we participate in video gaming. And this is something like when I was a kid, you know, we did a little video gaming. It was like Pac-Man. I was kind of on the tail end of the Pac-Man era. It's like the meteors are coming down. You got this little thing at the bottom blowing apart. Now it's like full on, generally like scantily clad, all kinds of straps attached to them, scantily clad, sexy women blowing people away with their machine guns. How do I know that? I haven't played a video game in years. But for some reason, if I'm on Facebook, these little ads pop up. I'm like, what is that? That's a video game? And it's the same old, same old. It's appealing to sex, violence as entertainment. And there's Christians that engage in that kind of stuff and think that's normal. It's not normal. It's disgusting. It degrades women. It degrades men. And it glorifies violence. And then we live in a culture where many Christians think that participating in sports that actually physically damage other people's bodies. Oh, that's okay. Now I understand, you know, when you're out in the ice or out at the ball diamond, you're, you're playing your sport, you might get hurt, but the goal is not to get hurt. The goal is to win the game. And I'm not opposed to combat sports. I have a brown belt in karate, but I've never injured anybody in karate. But now we have in our culture, like almost like a revival of the gladiators. Let's take two tough guys who get together and swear at each other. We'll throw them into a ring and we'll have them combat each other. Hopefully they can break each other's arms or punch each other's faces in or crack each other's skulls or bash each other's teeth out. We're like, oh, this is great. It's fight night. Folks, that's disgusting. 
This comes to us from culture. This is not the ethic of the Christian who's supposed to love other people and stand for peace. This is the ethics of the world creeping into the lives of God's people. And if you're raised in that kind of a culture and context, you just think, oh, that's normal. This is fun. This is entertaining. But what it in fact is, is it is violence. How does this kind of violence display the way or work of Jesus? Just ask yourself that question. And then consider this passage from Psalm 11, verse 5. Do you believe the Bible's authoritative? Do you believe the Bible's authoritative? Here's what it says in Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Think about that. We aren't barbarians. We are believers in the man of peace. And so we dedicate ourselves as best as we can to living lives of nonviolence in the midst of a violent and perverse world. Then we have a fourth woe. And this is very, very relevant, especially with all the sexual abuse cases we hear taking place in the world, sometimes in churches or denominations. Don't abuse other people. Check this out. Way back in the day, 26, 2700 years ago, people had the same ideas in their minds that many abusers have today. Maybe I can get someone intoxicated. Maybe I can slip them some, some drugs. Maybe I can kind of get them disoriented so that I could take advantage of them. Think that's a new idea? No. Babylonians were doing that 2,600 years ago. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Why? In order to gaze at their nakedness. This is the, the ancient equivalent of date rape. This is the ancient equivalent of hosting a big party, trying to get all the girls or guys drunk so you can sleep around. This is not like a new thing. This has been going on for a long, long time. And into that, God says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Notice he continues the the sexual imagery of uncircumcision, but uncircumcision was associated with what? Godlessness, because the people of God under the old covenant were circumcised, and the people that weren't under the old covenant weren't circumcised as a sign and seal of the covenant. So he interestingly selects sexual imagery to speak out against a sexual sin and uses it to label these people for what they are, godless people. Now in the Bible, we often also have the prophets using another image, the image of a cup. And the cup is often an image of God's wrath. So the Bible often talks about like the cup of God's wrath being poured out. It's about God's wrath. In fact, I think that imagery is woven into the Lord's Supper because in the cup, we have the symbolism of blood. And it's through the blood that the wrath of God is appeased through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So with all that in mind, the next statement is, The cup in the Lord's right hand, which is a strong arm, will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. This is a verse of judgment 
to those that abuse other people, especially sexually. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence on the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. And then speaking of the sin of idolatry, he says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in his own creation. It's like, what a joke. When he makes speechless idols. So sin number one in this passage is primarily about sexual abuse toward other people. And you can only imagine that the primary form of sexual abuse in the act of war was rape. But even after the fact woven into the culture, sinister scheming and plans that would position predators and perpetrators to take advantage of other people's bodies. We often hear in the media about church cover-ups and bishops and high-ranking leaders and sexual abuse in the church. It's taking place in all of culture. And of course it leaks into the church because sometimes the people of God follow the culture or let the culture follow them into the church. And this is something that we need to be very, very attentive to and our own community of believers having a zero tolerance attitude toward any sort of sexual perversion, zero tolerance. Now our approach is not to blast it out on social media because that would be to violate the principle of first Corinthians six. When there's garbage taking place in the church, the last thing you want to do is broadcast it to the world So the world can say, yeah, I knew they were a bunch of hypocrites. But at the same time, we don't hide it. We don't bury it. If the law needs to be called and the act is illegal, we call the authorities. We don't bury it. We don't hide it. And we teach hard against this. We remind people that sexual abuse is pure wickedness. Think of how wicked it is. This is why it's so destructive, by the way. If you've been sexually abused, you know how devastating it is and how many years or even decades it can take to really find hope and healing because here we have God has given us the gift of sexuality for what? For intimacy, for trust. They were naked and unashamed to take that beautiful gift and to use it for perversion and self-gratification is, is heinous and wicked beyond belief, beyond description. It destroys not only the body, but the soul and the mind and people's sense of identity. And so we say out loud, it is vile. It is wrong. It is disgusting. And if there are predators or abusers in the church, the call to you is repent. Turn from your sin, make restitution, take ownership for your actions and stop doing it. We are called to a high standard. Hiding breeds more sin. Unhealed abusers create more abusers. 
has a ripple effect. Now, if you're a person that has been abused, you have been hurt in this way, and it's, it would be unimaginable to me that there wouldn't be several in a room this size that have been sexually molested or abused or raped at some point in time. It would be unimaginable to me that there wouldn't be people in this audience that would fall into that category. We want you to find wholeness and healing in Jesus. And to the best of our ability, we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus speaking truth and, and love into your life. We also want you to know this. You aren't how you were treated. You aren't how you were treated. You may have been treated shamefully and in a dirty way, but you are not a dirty person. You aren't how you were treated. You are loved and special to God. You are loved and special to God. And God will vindicate you. For the sin that has been committed against you. This is why we are super, super, super interested in people connecting in the church. As the church grows, you can easily create sort of a spectator sport. Where people just come and watch and leave. We, we want you to get into a small group. We want you to be connected into the fabric of the life of the church. Because it's in your small group with your small group leader, maybe with the flock pastor, maybe with one of our biblical counselors, that you can sort through a lot of this stuff and make headway and find hope and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the fourth don't. The fifth don't is don't worship created things. Now we already kind of got into that in the last verse when God mocks idolatry. is like you're, you're creating your own gods. That thing you're worshiping, you made it. How silly is that? You made it, but you're actually putting that above me. You're finding more satisfaction, something that you created than in the one that created you. And then that theme continues through into verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Now, I doubt many of you have like a gold statue at home that you bow down to three times a day. <laughs> I doubt many of you carry around a little, you know, a little statuette or figurine in your pocket that you, you know, kiss and pray to as many ancient people did and people in other civilizations still do today. But that doesn't mean that idolatry has died in the West. Idolatry is still very much alive and well. We make beautiful cars. And then we worship them. We build beautiful houses and then we worship them. We're still guilty of worshiping things, stuff, money, material possessions. Now worshiping it, not probably not bowing down and praying to it, but just do this little, little self test. What do you live for during the week? What is it that kind of makes your heart beat faster? What is it that you spend your your time and your energy pursuing. So if you like break down your week into however many hours you're awake and you're like, well, how much time do I actually spend pursuing the things of God versus the things of this world? Now, obviously you have to go grocery shopping. You have to cut the grass. You have to drop the kids off at school. Like these aren't wicked things, but if these things are what make your heart race, 
and the acquisition of possessions are what kind of thrills you. That's idolatry. It's when your heart is enlarged for other things and small for God. God's like that silliness. So whether the idol is your very self or relationships or material things or life itself or the world around you, just remember it is silly for dust to worship dust. We're created. God alone is the creator and he wants our worship and our praise and satisfaction comes when we do that, when we worship him and him alone. So that's the five don'ts, the five woes that God delivers to the Babylonians. And then there's one do, do revere God. Here's how the passage ends. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The passage elevates God, reminds us that he is Lord, that he is in a holy place, that he transcends all of creation. And then the response we're called to is let all the earth keep silence before him. Now silence doesn't literally mean never say anything. Don't open your mouth. Don't preach the Bible. Don't worship. Just stay silent. Because obviously the Bible calls us to shout praises to the Lord and to preach the word of God and to pray to the Lord with our petitions and our prayers for th- of thanksgiving or confession. But silence really is about reverence. There's kind of a parallel passage. I think it's in Ecclesiastes 5 where it says, um, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Don't enter and offer the, the vows or rash vows of a fool but be thoughtful. It's about reverencing God, being thoughtful in our approach to God. This is what God wants. He wants us to esteem him and to worship him. And when we do that, we are leaving behind a great legacy that will give great honor and glory to God. So having heard this, let's assess our lives Are there any of the five don'ts taking place? Do we need to deal with any of these things? If there are, let's repent and let's choose to find rest in our worship and our pursuit of the true and living God. This is a legacy worth living and a life worth pursuing. 